Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to In the Clouds podcast. This is Bobby along with Cole and our special guest today, Steven Rosenfeld. Excited to continue our series on implementing marketing cloud and really diving in today to data modeling, design, and integrations. So to really kick things off first, Steven, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and uh, share with everyone a little bit more about you. Hey, thanks, Bobby. Yeah, so I am a solutions architect. I started my career on marketing cloud about six years ago at Salesforce. Um, I started in the Northeast region, so I managed a lot of retailer implementations on the product and uh, from there ventured into integrations and and after about three years moved over to Lev. Uh, And I've been doing uh, similar work, large implementations, um, cross-cloud implementations, et cetera. And Steven's being a little bit modest because while he was at Salesforce, he did win the Innovation of the Year Award twice. And he's known at Lev, I would say by everybody and by everyone, I mean me, is the smartest person at Lev. So uh, it's, uh, we're, we're very thrilled to have Steven on the podcast, that's for sure. Now looking at comparison of just who's on this podcast, that doesn't really say much, but Steven is, is a smart dude. We'll give him that. <laughs> He's definitely the smartest person on the podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Bobby. So as we as we go through this, uh, just kind of a um, summary of what we'll be going through. First is just background of data modeling design and the strategy for it within Marketing Cloud. What that data model is based off of, how what our approaches to it, different integration options we have. Uh, typical integration points. And then we'll get to kind of common questions that customers and prospects have as we're talking to them or just people that we're talking to at conferences and things. And then also just Steven's seen a lot. And so we'll talk through just some of the things like what's the largest amount of data he's seen? When does he see some lags um, in performance? Different things of that nature. So uh, we'll go through that as well. Um, And so to start, I'd love to... um, Steven, just start to kind of pick your brain on on the background of data modeling as we think about it within Marketing Cloud, what that data model is based off of, how how we should really perceive it, and how you just typically start your discovery if you're starting a new implementation. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a few key concepts that are are not specific to Marketing Cloud around data modeling, right? And it's important for us to keep those things in mind when we're implementing a, a new account or a new campaign within an account. Um, So traditionally, we have to uh, think about uh, database performance, how how is data getting into the account, and then, uh, you know, Marketing Cloud is built on top of SQL Server. So once we get that data into the account, um, it's going to be stored in in a table dedicated to that account, 
And we have to decide, you know, how is that table going to be used? Is this table going to be something that is used by multiple campaigns? Or are we going to pull data out of that one centralized table into campaign-specific tables? Um, and, you know, really what uh, table structure is required by the, the marketing team in order to execute the campaigns that they're looking for on the technical side? Um, so whenever I'm, I'm setting up a new account, I, I traditionally, you know, go through and, and talk to the, the marketing team about what campaigns they're deploying today and what, what they, what their wish list has been in the past for those campaigns, right? And, and what, what has recently been implemented, what got shot down because of, you know, some data issue or, or otherwise really, um, just to start giving me an idea of where that team is. Um, both in, in their, their marketing campaign space and if they have technical uh, people on their marketing team, right? Because uh, we are, we're talking about data-driven marketing, right? So um, when, when we're thinking in that way, it, it, it's important for me to understand the skill sets of those, that other team member to, to find those people that are data-oriented and really try to extract information out of them to make sure that I'm, I'm getting things right when we talk about the structure of the account. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and once we get past that sort of initial phase and in discovery um, and, and understanding design, what are really some of the best practices when we come, when, when we come to think about how we um, perceive uh, what the data model looks like, what best practices are around things like segmentation capabilities uh, and personalization strings and things like that? So, uh, I mean, there are really three things, right? Like consistent naming conventions and, and all that, but I, I won't spend any more time talking about that. Uh, it, there are, I think one of the most important things is that we bring data into Marketing Cloud in a normalized format, meaning, you know, we, we have tables that are related one to many, many to one. Um, and then, you know, I, I mentioned a, a moment ago about how, understanding how that table is going to be used within the context of the account, right? Do we have, uh, you know, a slew of campaigns all accessing this one centralized table or do we need to uh, query off of that one table and create campaign specific tables? And, and typically the, the second is what I do. Um, and when we are pulling that data in for a campaign specific workflow, um, we can denormalize it a little bit. So we start out with this normalized structure that really is, is very flexible and allows us to do a lot with our campaigns. But then we move more into a, a denormalized structure that minimizes the number of lookups that we have to do within uh, AMP script, for example. And, and that helps with the performance of, during deployment. Yeah, I ahead. think the way I've always thought about it is, into your point, Stephen, we really look at what, do, what data does a marketer or does the team need to be able to send the campaigns and the automations and the journeys that they want to be able to send. Once we get all that data in there, to your point, we can normalize it a little bit. So that way, if we do have some non-technical marketers, we can allow them to use the drag and drop segmentation as much as possible versus you know, writing a, a SQL query since the platform's based on, on SQL Server. And to your point about kind of denormalizing it, you mentioned AmScript. And for those who aren't familiar with AmScript, it's essentially a proprietary language um, and Stephen, keep me honest, but very similar to, to JavaScript where you can perform more advanced functions, whether it's lookups to data or 
content features that maybe stretch the limits of dynamic content. And you can also call out to different services. There's a ton of different things you could do with AmScript specifically. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really close to, to .NET. It's a server-side execution. Um, yeah, that, that gives you the ability to, to drive dynamic content and personalization that you were just talking through. Um, one, a few of the, the important notes there would be, um, you know, whenever we were creating our data model, um, you know, Marketing Loud doesn't have any restrictions on, on how you name that table, except for like special characters. And, um, there, there's a few characters you can't have in there, but it's not uncommon for me to have data extensions and fields with spaces in the names. And that's like, it, it doesn't cause like mass destruction, right? It's not the end of the world, but it does make coding the, the, that AM script or, you know, SQL statements when we're moving that data around a bit more difficult to manage. Um, so there, there are things like that that we can do within the data model to, to make things easier for the email developers in the world. As you're going through these conversations and, you know, looking at the data design and talking through with the data teams, the technical teams, one thing that Cole and I have found is as we go through integration discussions, there's always the question of, you know, what are the typical integration points, which I think most companies already have a good idea of what they are because they're, they're migrating from a current service, but there's always you know, the outlier where they're just starting to build out their marketing strategy and or they, what they're doing today, they don't want to continue to do. So I'm interested in one, like what are, what are kind of the typical integration points that you see? And then what are some other ones that people typically don't think of? You know, maybe, you know, during the sales process, we outline two or three of them. But then once we get into the actual implementation, when you're involved, there's actually, you know, four or five, for example. Well, it, it depends on the account executive, right, Bobby? I mean, when I get your deals, there's always like six or seven additional ones that I just never see or that, that you never saw that, that they're like staring me in the face. That sounds about right. I am pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, I, there's, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot that um, on the, the delivery side that we would implement against that sales isn't aware of at this point, you know, like for, for a smaller team, more inexperienced, uh, AEs maybe, but, um, you know, we're typically integrating with, you know, point of sales or, uh, you know, bringing in data from, um, web analytics providers and we're sending data to mainly data warehouses. Right. Um, so marketing cloud is, is really good at storing and, um, reusing, um, engagement data, um, but it, it's not intended to be the long-term home of, of all this data, right? So typically for that large volume, we do ETLs out of Marketing Cloud and into it. And so we, we've got data leaving Marketing Cloud through those EDWs to, to typically data warehouse. Um, we'll also uh, append things like uh, web analytics parameters to, to uh, links in the email so that Google Analytics can can pick it up, um, and then the API calls coming into Marketing Cloud from something like a, a point of sale for real time messaging. So, Stephen, when we think about, I, I hear a lot of really high level discussions when they talk about all the magical um, things that Marketing Cloud can do and and the way integrations work. And you hear something like, "Oh, well, Marketing Cloud will go and pull this out of you know this system and." 
um, you know, then we'll, you know, we'll push this over here. And um, I feel like those are, those are used a lot of the times synonymously when they obviously mean very opposite things. So um, I, I, can you talk a little more about like what integration options uh, there are? So like, like the different forms of integration as well as what is really push and what is really pull from a marketing cloud standpoint of capability? Yeah, cool. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, so when we think about you know, pulling data into marketing cloud. Have I not had any good points yet? Gosh. <laughs> uh, stream of consciousness. Come on. Now I got to get back. <laughs> that's a really good question, Cole. So when we think about things like pulling data into marketing cloud, um, you know, in, in, Traditional Salesforce and on the sales cloud or service cloud, we can create, you know, triggers within the application that when, when you execute a specific task, it, it executes a, a trigger or a workflow and, and pulls data down or, or does whatever is necessary. But we don't really have that, lo that level of granularity of control within marketing cloud. So when we, when we say, you know, marketing cloud is going to go and, and pull this data in, um, we have a, a mechanism of doing that. We can use uh, script activities within an automation to make web requests outside of, of Market Cloud. And, and typically that's going to, to initiate some process, right? I wouldn't want to do that and um, use that to start pulling in a massive amount of data. That's going to time out. It's not going to work very well. Um, but certainly we, we could have, you know, something that, that script activity starts, it runs on an external server, maybe drops a file on the SFTP, and then we have a secondary process in Marketing Cloud that, that detects that file drop and pulls that data in, uh, something like that. Um, we, we would be able to use a script activity uh, to pull data in as long as the, the volume's not very high, um, but we're, we're talking about running this within an automation, right? So typically the most frequent we could run that is it's within an hour and it's not going to be uh, reactive to some event, right? It's going to be on a scheduled cadence. Um, and when we're, when we're pushing data out, typically it's, it's the same way, right? Um, so again, I, I can send small amounts of data in a, a predefined cadence to, to an external server. Um, but the, the larger amount of data you try to push, the more likely you are to have that script start timing out. And so that's why I would, I would typically end up going towards an ETL when we're, we're talking about large amounts of data um, that don't necessarily need to be moved in real time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think while we're on the, the page of um, clearing up definitions, uh, another term that I think is sometimes thrown about, um, not necessarily in the most accurate way, is real time. And how do we really determine what is real time versus um, what is uh, really strictly batch import? Yeah, and I, I, there's uh, a lot of times that, that real time phrase is thrown around when it's, it's not really needed real time, right? Typically, the, the real time interactions that we have are, are when someone's you know, doing a password reset and we need to get that email to their inbox that you have a, an end consumer sitting there waiting for this communication to be sent to them, whether it's SMS, email, et cetera. That's when we, we start really needing to have those real-time integrations. Um, more commonly, we have the need to be able to respond to specific data points um, it, while a consumer is in a given workflow, right? So I'm thinking about things like... Um, 
hotel reservation um, journeys, right? Communication strategies and, and how would we design data to get into our data model in a way that makes sense for the timing of that journey, right? If, if my users move into this journey and that user's uh, going to hit, hit a, a decision split within journey, right? It's going to evaluate my user's data point um, on a given day, then that helps me understand how real time does that need to be, right? It's likely not that the moment the, the booking engine gets it, it needs to be over within Marketing Cloud, but it might be within an hour, two hours, right? That's, that's not real time, but it is near real time. And most of the time, it's, it's close enough for the, the needs of the marketing team. I think that's a kind of an interesting point you just made there of what's needed for the marketing team. I think a lot of times marketers feel like everything should be in real time or I would even say the other end of it too, or maybe even a little bit more lax than others and how quickly they need data. And so I think that's typically a pretty interesting conversation of how we're doing that and the size of the data that we're removing and that sort of thing. Now, on a more serious note, you know, the Marketing Cloud has, this, has the REST API and also the SOAP API. I'm curious uh, to get your thoughts on So when we're, when we're looking at SOAP versus REST, right? I mean, there's, there's two different ways to, to look at it. There's the, the functionality that's, that's already there, and there's future development. Um, so when we look at the, the functionality that's already there, um, anything that's been delivered in, in probably the last two to three years, I'd say, is, is going to be a REST API. Um, anything that's before that is, is really going to be SOAP. Um, and, and so there's, there's a few different endpoints that overlap, like writing data to a data extension and triggering uh, communications. Those, those two use cases are so common that both frameworks need to support them. Um, but when we talk about being able to, you know, dynamically create things within like an email within the platform, um, since they released Content Builder in the last two to three years, there's a, there's a REST API for that. But when we look at something like classic content, the, the, the legacy content or email system, that was all SOAP. Um, and so we're, we're at a point now where we've, we've got a hybrid of, of uh APIs that, that we need to be able to execute against, um, depending on the use case. And I guess thinking about that, especially as like we think about the newer features too, on the REST API, you've also got the active API, the lazy API, and also the sedentary API, which is my personal favorite as well. So um, glad you could kind of share the differences there. So, uh, so Stephen, a couple of the things that you mentioned as far as um, all the different data elements and integrations and things like that, I'm curious, what is the, uh, and certainly we don't want to release any client names or anything like that, but what's the, the largest amount of, of data you've seen in this, in this single data extension table? A uh, single data extension was just under a billion rows. Okay. Was there... Um, what was the particular reason for that? Was it just they wanted to bring in a lot of data or they were a very large organization that that was just their subscriber base? Uh, it was a very large organization that had been around for, for decades. Um, their data that they were sending over was not easily manipulated on, on their side. Um, so it would, it would take 
um, many <laughs> weeks of efforts in, in order to get a, a data change put in place. And so um, rather than, um, you know, creating a, a data model where it could potentially need adjusted in the future, we went the route of having this uh, very tall data uh, table that um, was not very wide, right? Um, so again, we're, we're, we're importing this data into SQL Server and uh, standard database performance uh, is, is an issue, right? So the, the taller our table's gonna be, the skinnier it should be. Um, this particular table wasn't as, as skinny as um, would be preferred, right? So typically, um, you know, I, for a table that tall, I wouldn't want more than, you know, eight or 10 fields. The, ours was, was closer to 30 or 40. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's more the, the effort that goes into changing the structure of that table in the future and, and knowing that it's, it's really locked in. Um, and once we get that data into marketing cloud, building uh, workflows against that table to, to break down that, that data volume. Like, we're not, we're not going to be doing email lookups into that table. That, that table is going to be uh, segmented down for specific workflows. So I assume those aren't individual, those aren't individual records then, if that's not like all the, the contact or anything like that, unless they have a subscriber base of like one in every seven people across the globe, right? But uh, so what was the, the purpose of individually of, of that um, data extension and how they function day to day without giving away exactly what they do? Yeah, so it, 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 the records in this table were not one-to-one -one with, mm -hmm. right, to your point. Um, but the, the table held um, relationships to um, multiple brands across the enterprise. So, you know, I, I as a consumer may be associated with several different brands and um, I may have multiple records for each one of those brands. Um, and because this customer needed to have both overarching and brand specific communications, we needed a decentralized table that, that allowed us to do that within things like audience builder. Um, yeah. So, so that was really the, the reason for it. Um, it, it was not an individual, uh, one-to-one -one with a subscriber base. Yeah. Not one in seven. One billion. That is impressive. Um, Steven, I want to cover off a couple of like really common questions that uh, a lot of customers or prospects looking at marketing cloud have, um, you know, one of which is, is really like, you know, aside from that discovery portion uh, and, and kind of kicking off a general marketing cloud implementation, uh, what's really required from a customer's standpoint for these integrations. So like, you know, the, everybody's, you know, curious about how much of the, of the lifting uh, will their internal resources be responsible for? What does that workload really look like on the customer? Yeah, and, and so the, the response there is, is a question, right? Uh, it's, you know, what do you have today and where do you want to be, right? What's, what's the purpose of our project? Um, you know, if, if you're looking to create improvements alongside the, the implementation of Marketing Cloud, which most clients are, then, you know, the, the, the effort would be, you know, we're, we're probably going to have to create some new ETL processes on, on the client side to send that data to Marketing Cloud for your marketing team to execute against. Um, 
you know, if you already have ETLs built and, and you're sending them to, um, you know, a specific SFTP, Marketing Cloud can, can use that same file, right? We, we create a, a new uh, data schema for every client that we implement. And so in that, in that way, Marketing Cloud is very flexible and it can fit to your current model. But the question is, should it, right? And so um, when we talk about with, uh, to the marketing team about their campaigns and how they're running today and what's their wish list and what's been a roadblock for them in the past and why are they moving to Marketing Cloud? That's where I start to be able to answer that question, Cole, of, well, you know, how much lift is this going to take? And, and if there are concerns around that on, on the business side, then we start to put a roadmap together, right? Say, okay, well, this piece of work was going to be a lot for your IT team and they don't have that bandwidth right now. But, you know, this section of data over here, you're already, you've already got. And so we can um, bring this into Marketing Cloud and, and maybe execute different um, workflows against it than you're able to, to get in your current ESP to unlock some new features. But, you know, we'll do that while your IT team um, prioritizes this other uh, batch of work. Does that answer your question, Cole? Yeah, it sure does. Um, another really common question that comes up is, is, is there a limit really to like the frequency or the volumes um, that, that marketing clouds able to store and ingest data? Yeah, so I mean, every database is going to have a limit to, to how much it can hold before you start having performance issues, right? So whether it's the, the number of tables um, that are, are in your account or, you know, the, the size of a specific table. Um, so, yeah, there are things that we've, we've hit in the past around this, but, you know, traditionally we can work around them. When we think about the, the limit of data coming into Marketing Cloud from something like a, an API, you know, there's, there's no hard limit. Marketing Cloud does have uh, limits on, you know, how much volume they want you to bring in from the REST API or, and, and after you exceed some threshold, you know, you'll, you'll sound some alarm bells. Um, but within Marketing Cloud, I've never hit an instance where they actually shut down the API and don't allow execution against it. Um, and, and like I was saying, you know, really it, it's more how you manage the, the data model itself, right? I, I've had clients that create three new data extensions every time they want to deploy a campaign. Um, they deploy, you know, let's say 100 campaigns a week. And, and then two years later, everything slows down because there are so many different pieces of the application that just load a list of data extensions. And when you have that many data extensions that the application is trying to, to fetch and display, it starts to slow things down. Um, so, you know, there are, there are different pieces of the application you have to consider when, when you're doing your, your data model, right? And so certainly I, I wouldn't want to do a send against a table that has half a billion rows in it um, unless I, I absolutely had to. And, and in that scenario, I would have to take other precautions to make sure that um, that send is performant. It shouldn't be doing dozens of lookups against other tables, things like that. Are there certain, when we think about integration specifically, are there certain products or platforms that Marketing Cloud does not integrate with? That's a fair question. I, I can't think of, of a product that I've been asked to integrate with that I've not been able to. Um, the, the reason being, 
you know, marketing cloud and uh, enables the ability to perform HTTP requests from either scripts that are scheduled or within uh, emails at the time of deployment. Um, and, and so, you know, any other system that, that has a yeah, REST endpoint or um, not even an API, it could just be an open endpoint. We can, we can pull data in um, and store that data in a, a table within Marketing Cloud and start executing against it, right? So um, I, I don't want to say that there's no, no, no platform out there we could, we could not integrate with, but certainly I, I feel that if there is, it's, it's likely an issue with the other platform and not something that's uh, due to Marketing Cloud architecture. It's been pretty neat to see the amount of integrations. And when I say integrations, I mean productized integrations that have come out, especially in recent years and primarily thinking of ones like form assembly and segment and these historical tools that maybe weren't central to the marketing cloud data model, but as you know, the Salesforce acquisition of exact target five years ago becomes uh, more and more or six years ago, I think actually mm-hmm. becomes more and more embedded. And these, these customers see that the marketing cloud tentacles are, are getting further and further. It's been pretty neat to see those. And I think that the top one, obviously that comes to mind for me is the integration with sales and service cloud. And, you know, it, it's still, it's interesting too, because I think there is uh, some stigma out there that marketing cloud has to be integrated with sales and service cloud. And obviously, you know, the three of us know that that certainly isn't the case. But as we think about folks who actually utilize sales and service cloud and integration to marketing cloud, the best practice from the, the product and technical standpoint is that we integrate or we push data into sales and service cloud first um, because the integration between that and marketing cloud, the connector is based off of the lead or the contact ID and the Salesforce side. But one question that, that we often get is, can leads go into marketing cloud first or leads or subscribers or however you, you think of it, MQL versus SQL, whatever that might look like. So I'm curious in, in your experience, Stephen, where you've seen that uh, work well and just some of the technical elements that allow you to do it. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You know, anytime we have, uh, you know, marketing cloud being implemented, it's ideal to have a CRM in front of it, right? The, the last thing you want to do is, is try to manage your consumers within your, your marketing platform. It's better for us to, to be able to feed that data back and, and have a reliable CRM in, in front of it. Um, when we think about managing those, those leads to your, your question, um, we talked a lot about how we can expand Marketing Cloud's data model uh, to, to fit the needs of something that's pre-existing or supports marketing teams, but I didn't mention as much the, the data model that's inherent behind Marketing Cloud, right? So this goes back to the, the dreaded list conversation, right? So lists are, are what Marketing Cloud was originally developed on top of, but um, it, it, it didn't scale the same way that data extensions do. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, when it, at the time of send, the list model is still executed against. And, you know, if, you, if you're, you implement that list model in the right way, um, you can absolutely bring your leads into Marketing Cloud. And um, what, what gets a little messy is when you have leads coming in from multiple sources and they don't share the same identifier, 
then you know it, it becomes a conversation around what what makes sense for us to use as an identifier for your leads. Um, it, and most of the time, it's going to be email address, which is going to be an inherent identifier, right? That's the mechanism that we're going to be communicating with them through. Let's use it to identify them. Um, and that, that allows us to consolidate those and scrub out duplicates easily. And then, but, you know, when we, when we talk about those leads converting into contacts, um, you know, we, we want to make sure that we also we continue to respect their, their opt-in preferences. And if, if we implement the list model in the right way, we take advantage of um, functionality within Marketing Cloud to, to suppress users in, in um, efficient ways, then we can ensure that even though they've converted to a contact, let's say they're, they're using Service Cloud or Sales Cloud, um, and we're now using that contact ID as their subscriber key, that the, how Marketing Cloud identifies that individual consumer, um, we can still ensure that they're not going to get an email from Marketing Cloud because when they were a lead, they opted out of marketing communications. Um, so there isn't a, you know, a, a baseline data model that we're building off of, and if we, can, if we take advantage of that, baseline data model the right way we can um, cover those types of use cases i think that's we were actually just on a call earlier today with a company that's evaluating marketing cloud and they have um, crm and they were asking how to you know go about this and so the two main ways that i know how to go about doing this uh, primarily journey builder and then also through a script activity if we want to go that route and i think there are a couple other ancillary ways too but one thing they were asking us was how, um, how does, so if I upload, let's say I go to an event and I have someone's email address in marketing cloud, but I get all this other data about them and I want to upload that into marketing cloud and then have that carry over into sales or service cloud. I think there's a real conversation of uh, where are we importing data and why? So why would we import that data into marketing cloud versus, you know, putting it directly into sales and service cloud, but also to your point, Steven, what is the identifier that we're using? And really the the matching up capability between those two is only really as good as the raw data that we're getting. If I live in CRM with one email address, but I live in marketing cloud with another email address, and there's no other identifier that can match me together, then obviously it's not going to be possible. But as long as we've got a identifier that allows us to match between them, everything hopefully should work just fine. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying, it's, it's always best for us to, to have that CRM funnel in front of Marketing Cloud. To your, to your point, if, if I'm bringing data into Marketing Cloud and then moving it to something like Service Cloud, then the, the reference to my, my individual consumer is, is not the Service Cloud ID, right? So even if those emails did match at first and I did have that established connection, if I change my email address, then I, it breaks that, right? So it if we bring that data into service cloud, then we can put, you know, whole workflows and rules around managing that data and we gain the benefits of, of the CRM in front of it. And then everything naturally flows down into marketing cloud. Um, we, we typically try not to push things up to the CRM in that way. For sure. Well, thanks Stephen, a ton for your time. I uh, really appreciate di diving deep into the data side of things on the marketing cloud side. Uh, just one thing before we get to completely unrelated, uh, with Connections 2019 coming up in Chicago this year, wanted to let you, everyone know that Lev um, will be there. Uh, we'll certainly be at the Expo Hall, and then we're also having a happy hour um, event as well on that Tuesday night, Tuesday 
June 18th. You can visit the Love website and sign up or visit any of our social media areas um, as well. Uh, also, once again, if you guys have questions or thoughts, anything like that um, that you'd like to share with us, you can write us at inthecloud at levdigital.com. Again, that's in the clouds at levdigital.com. So let's move on to completely unrelated. And Cole, I'm going to let you start. Um, you know, we've done a fair share of traveling uh, this week. And I was talking to a customer uh, on the phone. So I, I had a meeting yesterday uh, from the airport where I was trying to like hide in a hallway of the airport. And I'm hunched over my, my laptop like a grizzly mother like sheltering her cub you know trying to filter out any of the noise and um and i did a really poor job of it too uh you know because they come on and and gate changes and announcements and things like that over the over the back and it's it's just really it's not uh uh not not really good for the acoustics of your standard zoom or go-to meeting or whatever so uh got through the meeting and then I was talking uh kind of a follow-up today with the customer and they were asking like did you get you know did, you, did your travel go all right and I was thinking I actually it was the second time I was in LaGuardia at the time it was the second time leaving New York in like the last six or eight months um that I've actually left on time and not had delay now granted coming in wasn't as lucky but um leaving New York I've just had really uh bad luck um, and so I, I, I'm actually kind of curious, uh, Stephen and Bobby, what your guys' most hellacious travel stories have been. Oh, gosh. Well, before I go there, I will say I wish that or airports had two things um, to help pass the time. I wish they had those like phone booths that we've seen in offices where you can just go in there if you've got a call. They're not completely soundproof, but they're at least sound resistant. So you kind of get away from everything. I always wish that they had those and I, I would even pay for it. If I had to pay five bucks for, you know, a half an hour or something like that, I would you know be more than willing to do that. Um, I also wish they had like, just like walking treadmills or something. Just, you know, I hate just sitting at the gate and just waiting. It, it just like, and most of the time I'll just start like pacing between terminals or something or between gates because I just get really antsy. My most hellacious travel story, though. Oh, man. Um, Uh, Before you get there, I I will suggest this. Uh, If you're looking for like a walking treadmill or anything like that, just go up the down escalator. I mean, you might get some stairs. But yeah, you might get some stairs and it might be, you know, a little inconvenient for everyone else. But it's a great way to burn calories. I really like that. I might, I might do that the next time. If they ask me what I'm doing, I'll just tell them that you recommended this approach. No, just say that you eat lots of paint chips and don't ask questions. (laughs) Wait, hold on. Are paint chips not a part of everyone's nutritional diet? As long as they're lead-based, they're cool. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I can't really think of a most... um, Well, I, I, I shouldn't, I'll tell you what, I'll flip it on you. So this wasn't a, an awful um, travel experience. This is actually a really good travel experience. My wife and I were on our way home from our honeymoon and I still had a couple, we both still had a couple days off. And so we had some time and they were offering uh, like a $800 Delta credit and you got to fly first class uh, if you bumped flights and took a later flight. And it was the first time I've ever flown first class. And first of all, I didn't know they give you free alcohol or free snacks. Um, 
And also, uh, the first time, for those of you who have ridden first class, you get this like little like warm towel. I had no idea what to do with this warm towel. I didn't know. I should have waited to see what other people did with it. But I just started like washing my face with it. And apparently, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to wash your hands with it. Um, but that wasn't that was a that was a great experience. Especially, you know, this is uh, probably how long ago did we get married? Hopefully, my wife doesn't listen to this. Uh, almost seven years ago. So, like getting 800 bucks plus flying first class was pretty, was pretty incredible. You know, if that's your, if that's the most hellacious travel story you've come across, <laughs> I really don't feel bad for you whatsoever. I'm it, sure I've fact, slept in an airport at some point. You know, this I harkens back to, uh, this harkens back to when I was, um, I think it was in Newark, uh, where you and I both had flights out at, at almost the same time. Um, we both boarded our flights. I think yours was like 20 minutes ahead of mine. Both boarded our flights. Yours was like the last one to take off. Mine was the first one not to take off. And then they ended up shutting everything down at all the New York airports um, because of a rainstorm. Oh, this, no snow. It was, was even, snow? yeah. Yeah, it was even, I could see like, cause it had started just, it was like a blizzard as we were on the runway. And I was thinking, oh, there's no way I'm gonna get off this thing. And then you guys ended up having to stay like another 24 hours, right? Like you didn't even get off anytime soon. No, I was, uh, it, yeah, you, you got out just by the skin of your teeth, and I, we sat there uh, on the plane before it deplaned for like another hour and a half, and then they delayed and delayed for a few more times, uh, and then we sat in the airport for like another nine hours before they're like, yeah, and this was on a Friday, they're like, yeah, it's canceled, um, and we're really not going to have any flights until Sunday. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so I, I think our travel- <laughs> This just goes to show that the universe likes me a little bit better than they like you, Cole. Apparently, <laughs> All right, well, I'm going I'm to I'm challenge you here. So, it, mine, mine was probably what 2016, 2017. Uh, it was my first time flying to Vegas. Um, the trip went really well, and then on the way back, uh, my flight left. I think it was probably 6:30 ish, um, and Southwest did not let us check in until about, uh, or we we couldn't get through security until about four hours before the flight. I think it was so we actually got there. To, uh, quite early um, and couldn't check in or couldn't go through yet. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we went and sat down and um, I was sitting there with my wife and time comes that we can finally go check in and we, we get up and we walk back to the, the kiosks and there's a line from every kiosk out the door and around the airport. Um, so this was when Southwest went down um, and it was, it was just insane because we, we were there early and it was super quiet. And then we, we, you know, we had to wait. So we found this quiet corner of the airport. We come back and there's just lines everywhere. Um, so then we go through the, you know, luckily we, we were checking in with four hours before our flight. So, okay. So we, 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 we wait through that line. Our flight gets delayed. Um, and it, like I said, it was, it was supposed to take off at about six, six thirty. ended up getting delayed till 1130. Um, and I think got moved a couple times in there. Um, they're canceling flights left and right. Um, but then they don't cancel ours. They actually canceled a flight to Denver and gave us their plane. So we had to deal with like all these people around us that just had their flight canceled and they're, they're handing that flight off to us instead. And, um, we get on the plane, um, you know, the, the flight attendants make their speech. Um, and then we sit there for probably half an hour. 
And then eventually they, they get on there and they say, everybody's got to get off the plane. Um, the crew's been in, in the cockpit for too long today. By the time they get to Indy, they're going to be past their allotted limit. Um, and so that crew was not allowed to fly anymore. So we had to get off of the plane. Um, everyone's luggage was, you know, taken off of the plane and, and Southwest had, we were in the, uh, the airport in Vegas and there's just luggage everywhere. And they tell us, you know, they're, they're not going to bring that luggage out because there's too much luggage out and that they're not going to be able to manage it. So they told us to, you know, just leave and they'll, they'll get a hold of us for the luggage. And, uh, my wife and I kind of look at each other, like we don't have anywhere to go, you know, like, well, let's just stay here. Actually, no, we, we did book, we booked a hotel room and we booked it for the wrong night because it was after midnight. <laughs> and so we ended up, you know, it ended up staying there, but then right after everybody left, then our luggage comes out. Um, and so it was just, it was so chaotic um, getting home, but we ended up getting home the next day. It was probably 2 p.m. The great part about the great part about all this is that I was with you, Cole, and you're most delicious and I got out scot-free. Uh, I was also with Steven in Vegas when he had this experience, and my wife and I got out of Vegas on Southwest before they went down without any issue. You are the worst. I can hear you smiling, and it makes me very uncomfortable. I'm slash your tires the next time we hang out. <laughs> I feel like I should knock on like wood and like do all of these things because I feel like I can I continuously just get lucky. Uh, I just I, I just don't feel sorry for anything about you, Bobby. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot, guys, for the time and for uh, the episode. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode of In the Clouds, and we'll catch you guys later. Thanks. Thanks, guys. See ya.